This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. At this hour, Hawaii Congressman Ed Case and Congressman-elect Kai Kahele are preparing to hold a news conference to talk about their priorities post-election. We talked to Representative Ed Case uh, just within the last half hour about the results of the general. President Biden obviously earned the vote of, of many, many folks who had not voted for Hillary Clinton four years ago, and I think he earned the vote of kind of that middle ground in, in America that that could have gone either way. And uh, he did that by presenting a, a more unifying, uh, healing, uh, forward-oriented approach, and I think they chose that over, over the Trump presidency. However, let's not forget that Donald Trump looks to have gotten 70 million votes. And so he got the second highest popular vote total in the history of our country. And so there are 70 million Americans out there who made a different choice. And here in Hawaii, one out of three voters chose uh, Trump. And so clearly there is a concern and a perspective that um, feel like uh, losers today, and they have to be included in the uh, dialogue going forward. So there's, there's uh, you know, the, the presidency was answered, uh, but that doesn't end anything. All that does is, is, uh, is, is um, amplify the work ahead. So what does that mean for the work in the House? Well, I think the House obviously has to, has to listen as well as anybody else. I, I certainly am listening to my constituents. I'm listening to what they had to say in the election. And I'm trying to take that, that perspective uh, you know, back to Congress with me as our you know, 435 uh, colleagues out there. And so I think the House has to also learn those lessons. And President-elect Biden says that we all need to collaborate, and we have to do that. And I think that's going to be a very, very tough hill to climb, but we have to climb it. And so for the House, it means that um, on the, on the you know, bread-and-butter issues, the day-to-day issues that Americans care about across the political spectrum, the cost of living, the economy, health care, we have got to find a way to forge a much better and broader consensus on those issues rather than have them descend into kind of extreme position uh, political rhetoric. And you've been in contact with Congressman-elect Kai Kaheli. We talked with him on Friday. Uh, what, what are your priorities? My priorities with him are to get him up and running as absolutely fast as possible, and I think that he's going to do that. You know, we've enjoyed a long, you know, personal relationship. We obviously both come from Hilo, so we're both proud Hilo boys. We have a shared heritage in that way. And so I think we have a great comfort level with each other going into this. And my job is to uh, get him in place and get him up and going as fast as possible and to forge a a full, active, uh, true team for the for Hawaii in the U.S. House, and I think that that's all well underway now. So I'm I'm quite encouraged by where things stand, and I'm looking for uh, you know great things from him. There has been uh, lots of concern about you know the CARES money running out at the end of the year and and not having anything else in place. Well, I think it's an incredible concern, and I have been deeply disappointed that we didn't uh, come with a second emergency assistance package far earlier than this. After all, in the House we. We passed it on May 15th, so we've known for half a year now that we needed another package, and it's been a tragedy that the you know combination of uh, differing you know perspectives and and raw politics and and election has obscured that. However, those elections are are over now, and we've got to get that next big package in place uh, immediately. So, um, in terms of the remaining uh, less than two months of this particular Congress, that has to be priority number one. It's my priority, and I think it's most of Congress's priority, and I know it's President-elect Biden's priority. 
And we've watched the numbers go up and down when it comes to COVID-19 cases and the fatalities here. And, you know, Gila was hard hit at the vet center. You know, what we're seeing just outbreaks on the neighbor islands. What are your thoughts about where we sit as we watch what's going on across the country? We're in a highly tenuous situation right now. We are in some ways, very unfortunately, where we stood in the middle of the summer, where we thought we were doing well relative to the rest of the country and somehow felt that we were immune from that. And of course, that proved to be exactly wrong, as any public health expert would have told you. There's nothing about Hawaii that is somehow, you know, different when it comes to COVID-19, inherently different. And so we ignored the warning signs for the rest of the country when the rest of the country, you know, went up in COVID-19, had that second spike, uh, we coasted here and uh, we, we suffered for that. And so here we are, we're in the third spike in the rest of the country, which is more severe even than the first and the second spike. And so if we don't heed the lessons of the middle of the summer and say to ourselves that we have to be extra vigilant now because, number one, the rest of the country is spiking uh, worse than before, and number two, we have now, of course, opened up uh, to the rest of the country, so folks from those areas are coming here, we are not going to be well served by that. And so um, it's very, very tenuous. It could go either way. We could either uh, continue to do the right things and help all of ourselves along, or we could lapse into what got us into a very tough situation earlier. Well, there are some who are saying that there ought to be a national mask mandate. You know, where do you sit on that? First of all, wearing a mask is the number one preventive effort that you can you can do with COVID-19. There's just no scientific doubt about it. The more people that wear masks, the, the less COVID-19 has the opportunity to spread. Now, you know, if there is a clear recommendation out of an objective, scientific, uh, public health perspective in Washington that um, COVID-19 is getting so bad for this country that the only real way uh, to, to try to lick it is, you know, with rare exceptions, we all have to wear a mask. I would be in favor of that. I haven't heard that recommendation yet. And from the get-go, uh, my own view of it is, is listen to the public health experts. And so I'm going to be listening to the public health experts, and especially now that the narrative out of that community in Washington, D.C. is, is not uh, attempted to be colored by, by the politics of the moment. So I am um, optimistic that with a fresh look at, at the public health requirements and a focus, a laser focus on the public health requirements, which is what President-elect Biden has promised, we will get the best possible uh, public health advice. And if that does lead to a national mask mandate, then so be it. Do you worry about the pushback, though, because there have been, you know, calls for violence just, you know, with the results of the election, you know, and if there is a mandate, you know, we know that there are segments of, across the community that are not in favor of that. You made the list of uh, the American Conservative Union Foundation as a, you know, radical left. Uh, you know, do you worry about the divisiveness, you know, on this issue? Of course I worry about it. I worry about leaders of our country telling people that they don't have to wear masks. I worry about leaders of our country taking positions that are directly contrary to the public health experts. And yes, of course I worry that the result of that is violence. But um, the bottom line is you can't let that uh, risk, which comes from a distinct minority perspective throughout our country, drive what is necessary for all of us to be safe from a public health perspective and to have a have a revived economy. So uh, that can't be the driver. Uh, what has to be the driver is uh, telling the truth to the American people about what is needed and then um, uh, implementing what is needed on a logical, uh, reasoned 
national basis rather than, you know, leaving each of these issues to the states, which uh, is good to adjust to individual state concerns. But COVID-19 doesn't care at all about state borders. So uh, why should we treat it as a uniquely state issue? Uh, That makes no sense. And so I'm looking for that national plan and to implement that national plan. And I'm trusting that the vast majority of Americans, whether they voted for Biden or Trump, are going to understand why that national plan is necessary and be convinced of the scientific evidence behind that national plan for their own safety and that of their communities, wherever those communities are. I know uh, Congressman-elect Kahele is heading to Washington. Do you have meetings set up with uh, the rest of our uh, Hawaii delegation? Um, well, he's got a very, very full agenda going back uh, to Washington, and he, is, he has been very active already in reaching out to leaders in Congress and, and colleagues and colleagues-to-be. I believe that he has reached out to you know, both of our senators. I certainly, over the past couple of weeks, in anticipation that uh, in the event that he won, I've certainly introduced him myself to many of my colleagues. And so I've done uh, as much as I possibly could over the last couple of months to get him as ready as possible. Um, and um, so we are, you know, full, full, absolute full courtesies of my office, uh, whatever he needs, whatever he needs to get his staff set up, whatever he needs in the way of advice uh, on, you know, committee assignments, on, on uh, any, any range of issues that a new member of Congress uh, uh, has to deal with. Uh, I'm trying to get him as far along as I possibly can, and we've gotten him as far along as I think we can get him. But um, now it's up to him. Now he goes to Washington, he meets his new colleagues, he gets oriented himself, he starts to forge those relationships that, that um, you know, 14 of us uh, um, since uh, statehood have all done the same thing. We've all, you know, started our own journeys, and uh, ranging from, you know, Senator Inouye in 1959 through through some of the, the you know, the great uh, figures in our own political history. And now he's the 15th uh, to take his own place in the U.S. House on behalf of Hawaii. And I'm, I'm quite optimistic uh, that he is as well prepared as he can be and that he's going to make very, very good use of not only his preparation, but his, his natural abilities. Can I speak to your um, medical left issue? Oh, yes, issue? yes. <laughs> Yeah, so what do you well, think you about know, being on that this list? Is, this is an interesting one. First of all, the first thing to say to you is that, uh, you know, of course, um, the first thing to say is I'm just not into labels at all. Uh, yeah, it's a nice, catchy label, but, um, you know, I've never fit any particular label, and I'm not going to start now. It's always it's always the labelers for a particular issue that want to label you a certain way, and, and the ACU is probably the um, um, primary example of that. This coalition of the radical left, as they call it, actually includes uh, close to 200 out of the 435 members of Congress. So (laughs) clearly, I think it would be way off to represent uh, that uh, there are fully 200 members of of, of the U.S. House of Representatives that are off on some fringe. Uh, That's that's clearly not the case. And so, you know, it's all in the labeling. And if if you take a look at the uh, the bills that they judge that on. Well, let's see. A couple of major gun violence prevention measures, such as universal background checks, um, you know, permanently funding the Land and Water Conservation Act, which they opposed and I supported, uh, a vote to halt the withdrawal of our country from the Paris Climate Accords. Uh, they disagreed with me on that. They wanted us to get out. I didn't think that was good. Funding graduate medical education programs uh, to, to increase uh, public health capacity reducing spending at the EPA and the Department of the Interior, uh, lowering drug prices, requiring 
you know, um, the drug companies to negotiate with Medicare. Uh, these are all things they opposed. I supported, and I was rated as a part of the coalition of the radical left for voting for those things. Well, I think that that's um, a solid front and center throughout my district, at least. And so, you know, these are just games that are distracting from what we actually have to do, which is find moderate, you know, mainstream consensus solutions that are going to include all Americans. And I'm, I'm on board with that. That was Representative Ed Case talking about some of the challenges ahead. The other Hilo boy, Congressman-elect Kaika Hele, just completed guard training this weekend, and he leaves for Washington, D.C. tonight. Uh, he'll be sworn into office in January. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, a company of people dedicated to serving the needs of the islands since 1882, specializing in shipping to Hawaii and other communities across the Pacific. Matson.com. No one wants to hear the word cancer when they see their doctor, especially during this time of coronavirus. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk about the challenges patients and oncologists face when treating cancer in the midst of COVID. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from Alexander and Baldwin, serving the islands for 150 years through job creation and civic support. A and B, building partnerships in Hawaii with a commitment to respect Hawaii's communities, people, cultures, and environment. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. Hawaii may not have any scorpions of the land-dwelling variety, but our islands are home to a type of fish that carries the menacing name. The creature in question is known scientifically as Scorpionopsis diabolus, diabolus, or by its common name, the devil scorpion fish. These creatures are known for their highly effective camouflage, patterns of coloration and texture to imitate rocks and coral. As fellow fish and crustaceans swim close by, scorpion fish will ambush them and use their large mouths to snatch up the prey in one swift motion. The fish also have venom stored in their spines, uh, in the spines of the fins, but it's used primarily to deter predators. It's comforting to know that the fish are not purposely aggressive toward humans, although they have the ability, they rarely sting swimmers in our island's waters. Uh, for today's backyard quiz, can you give us the Hawaiian name for scorpion fish? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
Hawaii Safe Travels program is expected to entice timeshare owners back to Hawaii. It's just one aspect of our economy that is hopeful for a rebound. We recently talked to Jason Gamble, CEO and president of the American Resort Development Association out of Washington, D.C. A report reviewing 2019 points out that this segment of the visitor industry is traditionally more resilient during disasters. Last year alone, there was $32 million spent on construction of new timeshare resorts and an additional $60 million that was spent on renovating existing resorts. So that's the one thing about the timeshare industry. There's still new construction going on and ongoing maintenance, which, again, provides real valuable jobs throughout the economy. Now, uh, earlier this summer, you know, we saw the report from HTA that basically said that uh, the folks that were coming to take advantage of their timeshare units actually were staying longer because of the 14-day quarantine issue that we were dealing with, and that also a lot of the uh, timeshare owners were coming from outside of Hawaii, that they were using their points to come here. That's very true. When people make the investment and the time to go to Hawaii, they tend to stay longer than your average traveler, and they tend to spend more. What we find is that an average timeshare owner, when they come stay at the resort, will spend upwards of $4,300 during their stay. And that's great. We see the national average is a little bit less than that, around 3500 So there is additional spending that takes place when they come to Hawaii, whether it's on food, it's on activities, it's on artwork, it's for souvenirs. It's a, such a popular place for our owners to go. And they tend to, no matter what the case may be, and we found this regardless of natural disaster, economic impact, or, or sorry, natural disaster, overlooking at natural, uh, natural disasters there. One thing that we find is that the timeshare owner tends to want to come back to Hawaii, and there's very, very high demand for the owners to return. Your report, I think, mentions that during Hurricane Iniki, uh, when that storm hit Kauai in 1992, the timeshare resort occupancy kind of bounced back. Yes, it did. It, it bounced back from where it was at the hotel. When the hotels are around 20 and 30 percent range, the timeshare resort occupancy enjoyed nearly 80 percent occupancy rates directly after the hurricane. The same thing was seen after 9-11 and even after the great economic recession of 2008 and 2009. Occupancy rates jumped right back in the 70, 80 percent. And that's really attributed, first of all, to the strong demand of Hawaii and for the owners to travel. But second, the prepaid nature of the product, the fact that these folks have already bought and paid for their vacations, means they're going to take advantage of it. And that's something that we have seen, especially of this pandemic, is that the research, additional research we've done, we've seen that almost three in five timeshare owners plan to travel in the next one to two months. And three of five timeshare owners have already traveled since the pandemic began. So we see that real strong demand for the time and, and desire for the timeshare traveler to get out and experience their vacations. You've really seen the value being the commitment of the return visitor, that year after year after year, people continue to return regardless of what conditions they're outside, what conditions there are in the economy, or even, again, in this health care, we find that people still want to get out and travel. And Hawaii, the timeshare owner, wants to get back to Hawaii year after year. I guess you could say uh, the perception is that, you know, Hawaii has been pretty safe compared to other destinations across the globe, you know, because our numbers have been relatively low. They have been. And really, it falls directly in line with the value proposition that the timeshare resorts have been reemphasizing to their owners and guests that the standards of cleanliness that these operators take to match with the policies and procedures of Hawaii to maintain health and safety standards first. And it's about protecting not only the owners, but it's about protecting their employees. 
and the Hawaii residents, that they want to make sure that everybody not only feels safe, but all the policies and practices in place are. And our members have taken those steps to make sure that they enhance their cleaning procedures, which I believe are going to be here to stay for a long period of time, if not forever, and to make sure that they protect the residents and the folks that live there in Hawaii just as much as they're protecting their guests. And you talked about direct consumer spending. What are some of the other pluses, I guess? If you take a look at the advantages of timeshare right now, one thing that we're finding is not only the prepaid nature, but the fact that the timeshares themselves have more space, have kitchens where people can bring food in, or if they choose to cook, they can. But they also tend to be the popularity is in places where people can get out and explore. So when you see the direct spending, one of the great things that takes place when somebody comes to a timeshare, especially if they're there for a longer period of time, say seven to ten days, like they do when they come on island, they tend to explore and experience all that the islands have to offer, whether that's supporting local tour operators, if it's going to the markets, if it's visiting the beaches, it is all of those things that continue to support all the economic activity around the resort. And that's one thing that we really find that's a major advantage. There's also a significant amount of tax that's paid and dollars that are paid into the system and property taxes and otherwise that really helps support a lot of the infrastructure that is around those timeshare resorts. So they really do bring that visitor back year after year. They have all the local spending, and they have the support of local government as well. We are just launching this bubble, I guess, with Japan. How are you looking at that? Well, there is a significant desire for, and there's actually a significant percentage of ownership for a number of those timeshare resorts in Hawaii by those folks who live in Japan. To have that ability, that connectivity between Japan and Hawaii is is absolutely huge for a number of those timeshare owners who've been wanting to travel back to Hawaii. It will get those folks to be able to come over to Hawaii sooner, stay longer, and hopefully enjoy and spend more and help support more of the local economy in Hawaii. That is a major plus for our industry in particular to see that type of arrangement. Maui, I think, leads the state, I think, in the number of timeshares, if I'm not uh, mistaken. And they do get, a, I think, a fair share of snowbirds from Canada, too. They do. There is, Maui is certainly a very popular place for all of the United States, and in particular Canada, to travel to the Maui. And they do have a very large population of resorts. It is on the very high desired on the list, along with Oahu and Kauai, for people to come visit and spend time in the Big Island, of course, those four destinations tend to be the real big four destinations where international travelers tend to come, with Maui certainly being near the top, if not the top of the list for people and their aspirational travel goals. Can you, uh, I don't know, share any other insight about that and, and maybe how soon that would bounce back for those neighbor islands? Well, we've seen in discussions with a number of our a number of folks in the industry that there have been occupancy reports and statistics already, even as soon as last weekend, where people are seeing 50 and 60 percent occupancies at timeshare resorts. And when looking at the next two to three months, occupancy levels seem to be upwards of 80 percent as far as bookings are concerned for timeshare owners. And that trend seems to look into the future to be the same. So the beginning of Q1 of 2021, the demand is extremely strong. Because there really is not, I would say, a seasonality when it comes to the demand for our travelers to go to Hawaii. They want to go there all year round. And those numbers are starting to show, especially people who feel like there's, they've been pent up and there's a pent up demand for travel, the, the, the desire to get to Hawaii is extremely strong. And we really have seen 
that when, when doing additional research, we have seen that people, especially during the holidays, that we see that timeshare owners are more likely than other travelers to want to get out and travel around Thanksgiving. And we also see that when we look at the long-term occupancy, we see those numbers be very strong that we think people in the next several months will be taking vacations, including Hawaii. We're really excited and hopeful we see those trends continue into the first quarter of next year and even around the holidays here in 2020. Do you track uh, the number of units that people are trying to unload? As far as those folks who are looking to resell yes. the timeshares? Yeah, because you often hear, you know, it's you, you can't, it's so hard to, to dump a timeshare. It's easy to get in, but it's really difficult to kind of extract yourself. So what, do, what can you tell us about that? Sure. There is a number of opportunities and options available to timeshare owners. And when it comes to timeshares in Hawaii, for instance, it's such a desirable place that there is always very high demand for timeshare for timeshare units and for timeshare interests in the state of Hawaii. When it comes to people who are looking to resell or otherwise, one thing that has become more prevalent over the last several years are programs that developers themselves have either helping to somebody help somebody to resell their timeshare or even the options for people to give their timeshares back to their developers or the resorts if they're no longer using it. There's a number of options that are available to people which really make up, we'll call it the entire secondary market, and what is what are the options that are available to timeshare owners if for some reason that timeshare no longer meets their vacation needs. But what they're encouraged to do oftentimes is that it's often transferable to a family member or friend. They can always try to rent out their timeshare if they're, if they're not going to use it from year to year. And then they can always check with their resorts or they can check with their developer about the different options that uh, that are available. And even ARTA itself has a website to help with that if people are looking to timeshare, and that's www.responsibleexit.com. It's a free resource to owners for them to find different different avenues if they're looking to sell or otherwise give back their timeshare. And how does Hawaii stack up with other locations? Well, as far as popularity, it's darn near at the top. It's in our top five of overall number of resorts that as far as the most populated timeshare resorts here in the United States. The number one probably shouldn't surprise you, which is Florida. And then California is also a very popular destination. South Carolina and Hawaii really round out some of our top five and the top four most populated states where you've got timeshare resorts. Interesting. Okay. And then as mm-hmm. far as the forecast, then do you think we'll bounce back pretty quick because of our low we numbers? We believe so. We believe that mm-hmm. the demand is certainly there, the units are there, and we believe that the, the timeshare itself really offers what today's traveler is looking for, especially during this pandemic. It's the space. It's the in-room washer and dryer. If they want to wash clothes, they want to make sure they maintain all the sanitary standards they're looking to maintain. It has a kitchen. If they tend to want to bring food back in, if they don't feel comfortable eating at a restaurant, people feel very comfortable eating within their unit. And again, the prepaid nature of it really is, is encouraging people to use it. It's just not something they can cancel on 24 hours notice. These people plan, and when they plan and they make these reservations and commit to making reservations, we see more often than not, they follow through and travel. This report, you normally compile it every two to three years, you said? We do. We do. We do a specific one for Hawaii every two to three years, in addition to all the great information that HTA, the White Tourism Authority, puts out in tracking very much so the uh, very real-time data in the timeshare industry. So Will you be doing anything? Will you be doing anything special just because of this unusual year? <laughs> we'll be tracking, and we have started to do some quarterly surveys to understand occupancy and to understand other trends. So we're trying to put some more research around to understand what the effect of this pandemic will have on future 
on, on future trends. So that's that's our goal. A couple of other things that might be really uh, interesting to note here: when you take a look at the total spend, and you mentioned this once before, Catherine, about the offsite spending, we took a look, and there really has been almost a billion dollars that was spent on offsite spending by timeshare owners in 2019. That compares to eight. $3 billion total throughout the entire United States. So when you take a look at Hawaii and its size, for instance, and its location, that almost one-tenth or a little bit more than 10% of all the spending that timeshare owners did, all that off-site spending that took place by timeshare owners, took place in the state of Hawaii, which just goes to show you the commitment for timeshare owners and the desires for everything that Hawaii has to offer. That was Jason Gamble, CEO of the American Resort Development Association, talking about the timeshare industry and the expectations that it will bounce back faster than other segments of tourism. Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at user conflict at one of Oahu's most popular beach parks. Reporter Marcel Henri on the line. Good morning, Marcel. Hey, Catherine. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. And we are talking about Ala Moana, the popular people's beach park. Exactly. The the people's beach as it's known. And uh, so in this very unusual year and the, the conditions from the pandemic, you know, there's the whole nature is healing phenomenon you're seeing at other places like Hanama Bay and that's also been the case uh, you know in, in key places on the south shore like Ala Moana Beach Park uh, Kaimana Beach not too far away uh, where you've just seen scores of halalu and these other uh, small sardine like bait fish just you know these these clouds maybe you saw some of the, the footage on the news of you know these, these large schools of, of fish and maybe a couple of sharks uh, at least on Kaim- in Kaimana, not in Ala Moana. But, you know, just, just tons of fish uh, this past season. And uh, fewer visitors, but still swimmers in the water. And that has led uh, a lot of fishermen, um, a growing number of fishermen with a lot of people that have a lot of time on their hands. Uh, you just kind of had this perfect storm uh, where, where there were just so many swimmers in the water, so many fisher, fishermen uh, chasing fish just right nearby, and you had uh, conflicts and confrontations throughout the season, which is typically kind of the, the summer months into the fall, uh, where where swimmers were were trying to avoid uh, lines, getting tangled, uh, or even you know there were there were um, reports of people getting hooked, and um, just yeah, just a lot of heated confrontations. Um, so now the state is is basically looking for uh, ways to better regulate Ala Moana Beach Park in particular. Right, so they've got some kind of a draft plan that deals with the aquatic resource. Uh, where are we at on that? Yeah, so so uh, the, this is the Division of Aquatic Resources. It's uh, a branch of the Department of Land and Natural Resources, and they typically deal with uh, fishing and you know fishery uh, type type issues. Uh, they have been uh, for the at least the last month or so been putting together proposed uh, boundaries and just. Uh, suggestions of, of maybe uh, at one point they were looking at, at, at 
splitting the channel, you know, this, this very uh, safe, coveted swimming channel uh, at Ala Moana Beach Park, splitting it in two and, and uh, you know, maybe keeping the, the fishermen on one side and the swimmers either entirely on the other side or swimming in at their own risk. Uh, right now, what they more, they seem to be more seriously considering is uh, giving uh, fishermen access on uh, the you know the the Evamost side over by Cavallo and um, the the Diamondheadmost side over by Magic Island and giving the swimmers uh, the access in the middle. Uh, but all of these proposals kind of lead to um, you know more concerns uh, from from both fishermen and the swimmers and, and other ocean users in, in terms of the access uh, to those resources. Yeah, I know. I think the Waikiki Swim Club is concerned because they host a number of races that they say, uh, you know, it could be in jeopardy if they divvy up the beach. Right. Like the, the key thing about Ala Moana Beach Park and what makes it uh, so coveted to swimmers is it's like an almost exactly kilometer long uh, channel to swim, you know, and, and relatively safely inside the, the reef there. Uh, and so, yeah, they have they have contests, but even just people that are that are training, you know, and that are out there day to day. Um, and a lot of the, the key problems have, have happened on the Magic Island side, where normally you do have uh, fishermen up on the on the rocks there, but out of the way. Uh, but with the fish, the way they were they were behaving this this summer uh, and into the fall, they they were basically the, the fishermen were spilling out onto the beach where. Uh, a lot of swimmers and even, you know, uh, exercisers, seniors, uh, you know, disabled people looking for access where, where they access the channel, this, this kind of sandy bottom spot. Uh, so that's kind of been the, the real, um, you know, point of conflict in, in Ala Moana. Well, I, I know the conflict, user conflict issues over at uh, Kaimana Beach uh, have somehow been eased just with the odd and even uh fishing years that, uh, that they allot. Uh, but I was there on the beach, I think, the, the one day where there was some rock throwing, and I think they had to call an ambulance. And oh, so, man. Uh, yeah, it, uh, it is, uh, it, 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 things are getting strained, uh, you know, whether it's Ala Moana or, or Kaimana. But uh, I've also been there when the, the fish have started attacking the Halalu, and, you know, of course, I'm out of the water because I, I don't want to get in between the, <laughs> the shark and his dinner. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and that's that's an important point. Is that this is you know they're looking at a plan for Ala Moana, but there's certainly been incidents at, at Kaimana as as well. And you know they're looking at at actually establishing rules. A lot of the users are saying, can't we just come to kind of a, a more gentleman's agreement and just you know these kind of unofficial protocols? Uh, but the state officials are saying, if we need to post signs and things like that, we need to have actual rules on the books that that people need to follow right and they've got a, i think a meeting later this week on this so uh, appreciate your story thanks marcel thanks Catherine. that was reporter marcel Henri with today's reality check find his story online at civilbeat.org support for hawaii public radio comes from ruby tuesday hawaii following health guidelines offering dine-in and take-out daily at its restaurants and bars in kapolei mililani moanalua and kaneohe rubytuesdayhawaii.com
this week's On the Media. Up is down, black is white, Fox News is too liberal? Fox News sucks. The reason why they're chanting that is because Fox News called Arizona for Biden, and people are angry about that. This week's On the Media from WNYC. Beginning this evening at 7, following The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a distance EMBA in travel industry management, scheidler.hawaii.edu. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. HPR's Dave Lawrence and astronomer Christopher Phillips discuss the mystery of fast radio bursts that have been puzzling scientists for over a decade. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny and very troubled planet. And as always, we are so grateful to get the guidance of astronomer Christopher Phillips. And wouldn't you know, we've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. So this week, stargazers, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn can be seen in the southern sky after sunset. The moon is approaching its new moon phase as the week goes on, so skies will be nice and dark and perfect for stargazing. And so if that mystery over the uh, fast radio bursts has been keeping you up at night, I understand Chris has a little something to put us at ease. What do you have this week? Well, it is possible we have discovered the origin of those mysterious fast radio bursts that have been reported over the past 10 years. The enigmatic nature of these powerful astrophysical phenomena have given rise to all sorts of theories, most of which involve the collision or explosion of some sort of object, such as neutron stars or black holes, and in some cases, even alien intelligence. However, astronomers have now observed for the first time ever a fast radio burst from within our own Milky Way galaxy. What is the source? I'm guessing it's not so mysterious. You're right. It is an object called a magnetar, which is basically a neutron star with an incredibly powerful magnetic field. In fact, the magnetic field is so strong it could disassemble you into your component atoms. These objects are created during supernova explosions, specifically a core collapse supernova, when a massive star reaches the end of its life. And how did they detect this thing, Chris? Well, the team was using a unique type of radio telescope known as the Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment, or CHIME for short. This array of radio antenna is very sensitive to blips and bursts of radiation from out there in the cosmos. And are these magnetars probably responsible for all the fast radio bursts, or could there be other culprits? Well, it's actually looking like these are responsible. Ah. It's estimated that around 50% of all stars that die in core collapse supernova become magnetars. So these objects are found throughout the universe. This would definitely account for the amount of FRBs or fast radio bursts that we have been seeing. Another mystery put to rest by Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for Waimanalo Health Center's expanded facility, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com.
This morning, we waded into our ocean waters to take a closer look at devil scorpion fish and asked you for its Hawaiian name. These fish have highly effective camouflage, patterns of color and texture to imitate rock and coral. It's one of the species' main methods of hunting for food as fish and crustaceans swim by. The scorpion fish nabs a mouthful. The fish also uh, have venom stored in the spines of their fins, but mostly that's to fend off predators. Devil scorpion fish rarely hurt humans, but it should be noted that their coloring blends so well in the reef that ocean goers can be stung if they accidentally step or touch a nohu. Severe pain can last as long as 12 hours if left untreated, and the best first aid treatment for a nohu sting is to soak the wound in the hottest water the person can stand for at least a half hour to destroy the venom. And congratulations to Mariah from Hilo. She's a swimmer. She says she swims with a special uh, laminated card that helps her identify fish in the ocean. Good point. I have to do that. That's uh, our quiz today. If you have one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. An eight-year journey exploring the surfing culture in Southern California comes full circle for a longtime surfer and now author. We talked to David Matuzik, who tells us he is surfing his way up the West Coast. He just completed a book on the history of the ocean sport entitled San Onofre, Memories of a Legendary Surfing Beach. For the last 40 years, I, I've been a surfer regularly at a sur- very famous surf beach named San Onofre. And one of my old surfing friends who we lost last year, his name was Wally Dusler. We lost him last year just six weeks shy of his 100th birthday. He began surfing uh, at San Onofre in 1937. And he was telling me for a number of years all the fun stories of the surfers in Cal, the early California surfers. And I said, Wally, we probably should document some of this. And I asked him if he was interested in doing some oral digital histories. And we put together a little 50 to 100 page pamphlet that would booklet that would be Wally's memories of surfing. Well, Wally told his friends what we were doing and they were all his contemporaries. They were all in their nineties. This was eight years ago. And one by one, they invited oral digital histories on them. They opened up their personal photo albums, family photo albums. So I I scanned hundreds of photographs of the earliest days of California surfing. So what I did was I took all those oral histories and all those photographs, and I tried to tie them all together and put them into historical and cultural context. And then the project just became a runaway train. For eight years, I worked on it full time. And that's where the Hawaiian uh, history came in, because I wanted to really document uh, the prevalence of uh, not just Hawaiian surfing, but the prevalence of Hawaii's, the Hawaiian culture influence on California surfing, and, and particularly at San Onofre. As it turns out, the first surfers at San Onofre arrived in the early 1930s, and one of them was a legendary surfer. His name was Lauren Whitey Harrison. And he and another famous surfer named Pete Peterson and some others used to stow away on a steamer ship that was in port at Long Beach, California, headed for Hawaii. So they would regularly go to Hawaii and bring back Hawaiian surfing culture. And so much of the Hawaiian influence 
uh, at San Onofre started there, and then it kind of snowballed from there. In the early 1990s, a Hawaiian, a native Hawaiian named uh, Kalani Akui, was looking to set up a Hawaiian surfing club in Southern California. And they wanted to get together a lot of the uh, native Hawaiians who had moved to Southern California and, and get together and have a place to share culture and and promote Hawaiian culture and, and to be able to surf. And they found a wave, one of the many breaks at San Onofre, that they feel is the closest wave to the Waikiki wave in uh, in Hawaii. So they set up shop at San Onofre Surf Beach. They uh, It was uh, an outdoor clubhouse, and they began meeting, you know, uh, every other month down there. And they, you know, they surfed more regularly than that, but they had formal meetings. I was invited to join about eight years ago when I met Kalani, and I interviewed him for the book. And that's when I ran into legendary big wave surfer Paul Strau from Hawaii. And uh, he's the, uh, the innovator, the one who... Uh, began the Cheater 5 pose on a surfboard where you hang five toes over the curl them over the front of the board. And uh, it's kind of a Cheater 5 uh, as opposed to a full hang 10 maneuver. And uh, so Paul Strau uh, and Kalani, who have become dear friends in the past eight years, were my sponsors to become a member of the Hawaiian Surfing Club. About half of the members are Native Hawaiians, and the rest are, are uh, California Natives like myself. So uh, we act, the club itself actually promotes Hawaiian culture there in Southern California. In May, on Memorial Day weekend, we host a big Polynesian festival over in uh, San, nearby San Clemente. We bring in uh, Hawaiian Polynesian dancers and music and so forth. And as much as anything else, the intent is to spread the aloha of Hawaii in Southern California, and particularly at San Onofre. But my uh, surfing book uh, really chronicles every aspect of surfing history, including a large part of the Hawaiian history. It started here in California with the Hawaiian princes in 1885 when they were surfing the Lorenzo uh, River mouth here. And they shaped their own board made of redwood. And when they went back to Hawaii, they brought back redwood slabs and redwood board, and they actually began the tradition of redwood surfboards in Hawaii. Prior to that, uh, they'd been using the native uh, woods. There were three uh, native woods that were very prominent, depending on your class and society in, in, in old Hawaii. And a fellow there, actually is one of the members of our Hawaiian surf club, although he lives in Hawaii, uh, is the, the most famous, I think, of, of all of the Hawaiian board shapers. His name is Tommy Stone. Yeah, Tom Bohaku Stone, and, yes. Yes, and uh, he's a great guy. He came over a couple of years ago. He came over, I was invited to speak at San Diego State University at the second annual uh, International Surfing Conference where they brought in professors from all over the world to study uh, and speak uh, on uh, uh, surfing uh, culture and surfing science and so forth. And Tommy came over from Hawaii, and members of our Hawaiian Surf Club joined with him and put on shaping demonstrations of, of uh, Hawaiian uh, ancient boards with the redwood slabs that he normally does. And then not too long ago, it was just this past year, the Bishop Museum did an exhibit on the ancient boards of old Hawaii. And Tommy was over there with a pop-up canopy outside, and he was regularly doing surfboard shaping demonstrations at that event as well. He's one of the 200 contributors that I have to the book. Paul Strau wrote one of the forewords to the book, and 
uh, some of the great surfers, surfing legends, Corky Carroll, Nicky Munoz, Mike Doyle were all contributors to my book. So it's a kind of an A to Z look at surfing from the beginning of time and Polynesia and Africa and Peru. Those are the three places that we think surfing originated. And it brings us all the way up to uh, modern surfing today. I really touch bases on on the surfing literature, uh, the origins of surfing music. Uh, for example, uh, when Whitey Harrison uh, came back, he brought Hawaiian music uh, back. And they would play Hawaiian music down at the beach there at San Onofre. This is back in the 30s and 40s. And then they began sort of a campfire sing-along tradition that was uh, partly Hawaiian and partly the uh, common uh, genres of music of the times. I mean, they were playing sw- a big band swing music. They were br- uh, playing uh, old folk songs, the popular tunes of the time. And and that sing-along tradition around the campfire at San Onofre evolved into something we call today the Bamboo Room music sessions. And uh, we didn't do them this summer because of uh, covid but a lot of the old-timers, any of them that are still around, mix in with some young musicians, and they gather around an area where there's a lot of bamboo, bamboo to kind of break the wind a little bit. And they get together on Wednesday afternoons, and they play the old Hawaiian surf tunes. And one of the fellows plays an old uh, steel slide guitar, and, and uh, it's really a lot of fun. But the point is, it's not just a book about San Onofre. It's a book about the entire surfing culture. That was David Matuzek, who's just compiled a book on the history of surfing from the perspective of San Onofre, a popular surf spot in Southern California. For links to find out more, check our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. And that's it for today. Tomorrow, we rebroadcast a show about sniffing out fraud and abuse in state government when it comes to doling out the CARES money. Post-election blues or relation? What do you think of the results? Sound off. Call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. You can tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember that all of our shows are archived. Find them on the Conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.